Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I'm joined with special guest, my brother, Cameron McCluskey. Hello, Cameron. Hi, Caitlin. Are you excited to be here? Very excited. <laughs> in the recording studio? We are studio in downtown Toronto. <laughs> So today we are doing another Agatha Christie. It was originally supposed to be a different book, but it was way too long and I gave up. So get excited for a long book in the future, maybe. Uh, this one is called Evil Under the Sun. It was written in 1941 and it is a vacation summer mystery. So what we could have been doing this summer, except <laughs> there's no travel. Outside of the country. Yes. So you're right. You're right. Cameron and I are actually having a great time swimming in the lakes of Ontario. Okay. Okay. There's a couple things I want to say first. I meant to, I, I have been corrected by a couple of people on my pronunciation of certain words and I every week mean to correct myself and forget. So in um, the body in the library, I said hearth when talking about the fireplace, but it's actually, hearth. yes, it's hearth. So Correction there. And then in same episode, just corrected from a different person, the body of the library, when talking about one of the guy's servants, I called him his valet because that's when I think of like a car valet. That's like how you pronounce it. But when it's a person, it's a valet. Who, of, yeah, of course. Caitlin, you're so dumb. But sorry to everyone who was cringing several weeks ago at home. Are you ready to get started? I'm pretty ready, yeah. Okay. Got everything going. So, this book is, we kind of get introduced to the setting of where, where this mystery takes place. And it's at a, on an island called Smuggler's Island in Leathercombe Bay, which is like a like classic summertime spot in England, apparently. And the hotel that's on the island is called the Jolly Roger Hotel. And I'm going to post on Instagram, if you're not following me already, it's Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm going to post a picture of what the island looks like to give everyone an idea of what the setting was. So you have this island that's connected to the mainland with like a causeway bridge type thing. The way it works is you can only cross the causeway at low tide. At high tide, it gets covered and you have to like row back and forth. And then the hotel is right at the end of that causeway. And then you have like a, a bathing beach right by the, the uh, hotel. There's a couple of like different bench seating spots and a couple of different coves that people go to like picnic in. And so one's called Pixie Cove and the other is called Gull Cove. And kind of the difference is they're on the um, east and west side of the island. So they each get sun at different points of the day. And that's kind of important because people will either go there in the afternoon when it's sunny or in the morning when it's sunny, depending on the cove. So I'll leave, I'll leave the picture open for Cameron to peruse and anyone at home go on Instagram. So we start by finding Hercule Poirot is, of course, vacationing at Smuggler's Island. And he's sitting in the terrace, which is kind of like above the beach. And it's a bunch of people sit there who don't really want to be bathing or sunbathing or whatever. And so there he's sitting up there watching the bathers. And everyone else is who's sitting around and they're kind of just chatting away, just like you do on vacation. And so one of the couples with them is Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. And Mrs. Gardner is a big talker. She likes... The sound of her own voice is kind of the the picture you get. And so she's just going on about, you know, small things. And then there's another woman, Miss Emily Brewster. And she's like a tough, athletic woman, likes to row, swim, all like, you know, sporty. 
And Mrs. Gardner is going on about how they picked this particular spot and how like it had been recommended to them and it was so picturesque and they could have gone to any like beach along the coast or like hotel, but they picked this one and they're very happy that they did because it's so cool being on an island where you kind of can't be interrupted by other, I think they call them cherubanks, carabanks, which is like, like buses full of people that might like bring people into the city like tourists type thing. I mean, so they're tourists as well. Mr. and Mrs. Gardner are from America. So they're talking about the people that are sunbathing and Poirot's kind of saying that it reminds him of like a butcher slab and like slabs of meat or like the morgue because just all these bodies that all look the same lying on the beach. And so yeah, it's a little morbid, but that's, I guess, Poirot's point of view from his world experience. And the gardeners get up and leave, and as they leave, the, this new character, Reverend Stephen Lane, takes their place. And he's just come back from a hike, and that's like his big thing. They call it um, going for a tramp, but it's just hiking. So as they continue to chat, Mrs. Redfern gets out of the water from her swim and comes up to them. So again, this is like a new character. And she's a, she's a young woman, she's recently married. And she's kind of saying, because they're talking about sunbathing, she says, oh, I don't like to sunbathe. Like, I, I'm so pale, I just blister and get freckles. And then shortly afterwards, another young man gets out of the water from his swim, and it's Mr. Redfern, her husband. So Mrs. Redfern, like, calls him up to come join her. And as he turns to kind of go get his towel, he, like, he calls back up and says, like, coming! And he goes to get his towel. This beautiful young woman walks out of the hotel and down to the beach. And immediately everyone on the, the entire beach and on the terrace is drawn to this woman, this beautiful red-haired woman wearing a, um, they call it like a Chinese-style hat. And I think it's just a really like wide-brimmed cardboard green hat and bathing dress. And she goes down to sunbathe. And as Mr. Redfern is turning around for getting his towel, he kind of like catches her attention as well. And instead of coming up to the hotel, he follows this new beautiful woman. And so Miss Brewster kind of says that this woman is the personification of evil and they start to talk about her. Her name is Arlena Marshall. And so Christine Redfern or Mrs. Redfern, you can imagine none too happy about this. She kind of without saying anything gets up and goes into the hotel um, looking upset. Poirot's attention, on the other hand, so he did, he of course was admiring this woman, but then his attention is drawn to the one person on the beach that did not look up or turn their head when Arlena walked out of the hotel, and that is her husband, Captain Marshall. And so I think he turns to Mr. Reverend Lane, the Reverend, and says something to the effect of, I wonder why the husband's attention isn't drawn. And I think the kind of general consensus is, he's used to it or he doesn't notice that other people are giving her attention or whatever else. So then another, a new character comes to sit down with, with the group on the terrace and her name is Rosamond Darnley. She's a famous dressmaker in London. She's kind of like made a name for herself and is pretty rich. And she comes to sit down by Poirot. Um, oh, sorry. I said this was on the terrace. This is, this is later in the day. So Poirot is sitting somewhere else. I think it's kind of, he's by himself and Rosamond comes to sit with him. He can kind of tell that something is worrying her. The way she's talking, she's kind of going, why did I even come here? And like, it's, it's only too terrible. And so she admits that what's worrying her is what she calls a ghost from her past. And so it's the idea of 
someone, someone in her past life who's come back into her life. And it's making her think about what could have been. Like if she had done different things in her life, where would she be now? And then she's kind of talking about like feelings of inadequacy, um, that she is not married and have kids. She's kind of going, yeah, like I know that like what you're supposed to do as a woman is you're supposed to get married, you're supposed to have kids, but like I'm rich, I own my own business, I'm doing all this other stuff, why is this not important? And Poirot kind of says, well, it is, like you can have, like, you can have whatever you want, like whatever makes you happy. And then Poirot also is able to pick out right away what the person from her past that she's talking about. And he goes, is Captain Marshall an old friend? And Rosemond's kind of surprised, but she admits, yes, they had grown up living like as neighbors, living next door to each other. And she kind of agrees with him. It says that he's a dear and that he's got a knack for making unfortunate marriages. And so they talk about how his first wife, he had married her after like she, the first wife had stood trial for murdering her first husband with arsenic poisoning. And when she'd been acquitted, for whatever reason, then Captain Marshall had married her. So that was his first wife. So she had been on trial for murder and then he married her. How did that work out for Captain Marshall? <laughs> well, uh, she ended up dying, I think, in childbirth. Okay. They, had one, they had a daughter, Linda. So the, the first wife dies and then she, he marries this, this new woman, Arlena Marshall, who they're kind of saying she, she's known to have had affairs with, with kind of men from all over. And there's one example of this old man who there was talk that Arlena had an affair with him and he ends up leaving her his fortune, hmm. which however much it was, but the, the family was obviously none too pleased about that. Arlena was pleased about it. Uh, and so they're saying there's, there's that man that we know of. And then now Redfern, like clearly the talk of the hotel is that Redfern and Arlena Marshall, two married couples possibly having some kind of an affair. Right. So while this is going on, Linda, the daughter of Captain Marshall, is in her room contemplating her appearance. And she's kind of going, how awful is it to be 16? It's so terrible. And she's thinking of her dad sending her to school in Paris. Because that had been like the idea is that they're thinking to send her away to school. And she's kind of thinking that she doesn't want to be sent away. She doesn't want to go to school in Paris. But then on the other side, she's like, I don't want to live with Arlena Marshall. I don't like my stepmother. So I don't want to be at home. I don't want to be away. Kind of what do I want? And that's kind of when she realizes that she does really dislike Arlena. I don't think it had hit her until that point. And just how much easier it would be, how much life would be easier if Arlena just were to disappear. And then she thinks about the other people in the hotel and that she really likes Rosamond because Rosamond like treats her like a real person. When they have conversations, it's, it feels real. And that her father looks really happy when he's talking to Rosamond. Like he, he looks, he like gets like all youthful and like laughs a lot and that kind of thing. So then we go back to Captain Kenneth Marshall. He's gone into his wife's room and he's asking her if, he's kind of going, have you met Redfern before? Is this the first time you're meeting him? And she you know, I'm not gonna lie, she admits, yeah, we met at a cocktail party before, but like I, it was just brief kind of thing. And she's kind of saying it was a great surprise to her to see him here. But Marshall kind of goes to her, I think you planned it. I think you both planned to be here at the same time. And she gets all mad and goes, I would never do that. What do you mean? Ridiculous. What do you think? Well, I have to have all the facts. Okay, so you're not sure if this is planned or not yet. You know, do you have a gut feeling on if it was? Oh, right. Um, I have no idea. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to that. 
So then later that evening, Mr. and Mrs. Redfern are sitting on a bench overlooking the sea. There's kind of like throughout the island, there's these like little nooks that are carved out with benches or like pads and things like that. So you can kind of get away on your own or do whatever and kind of see different views out onto the ocean. And so they're sitting there and she's kind of, she's upset with him. Um, and she's upset for making him come here. She's kind of going, we, there were so many other places we could have chosen. Like there were other places they wanted to go. Why did we have to come here? And then she says, I know you're infatuated with that woman. And then he immediately gets super mad, Mr. Redfern. And he says, you're being a fool. It's ridiculous that he's not even allowed to talk to other women. He's kind of going, she's a friend. I'm not allowed to have friends who are women. You're being crazy. And they get up to go. And as they're leaving, we find that there is a man in a recess nearby who couldn't be seen by the couple, but could hear everything that was going on. And he shakes his head sorrowfully. Any idea who that man could be? Is his name Poirot? Is <laughs> his name Poirot? Good guess. Yes. Yes, it is. So Hercule Poirot, not one to be tactful. And if he overhears a conversation, move out of earshot. He'll stay and he'll listen. <laughs> so maybe the next day, Rosamond, Darnley, and Kenneth Marshall, they've gotten together and they're kind of chatting about old times and old adventures. And Rosamond asks why he doesn't get a divorce from his wife. And she kind of is saying she's pretty notorious. Like there's, her name is well known for specific reasons around, around town, et cetera. And Kenneth Marshall immediately goes, he's like, he hates the idea of divorce. He thinks it's ridiculous that couples nowadays think that everything is temporary and you can just get married, get a divorce without thinking about it. And then he would never, like, that's, that's not who he is. If you marry someone, you stick with it. Till death do us part, he's old-fashioned in that way. So that's kind of the end of that conversation. And then we get introduced to a new character. His name is Mr. Horace Blatt. And we're introduced to him after he almost runs over Mrs. Redfern, coming around a corner on his way back to the hotel. So this is on the mainland. They're like on the road. And he's known as a super talkative, attention seeker, you kind of get the idea he's a jerk. Like no one wants to be around, like in his presence for longer than they have to. But he insists that he, um, she get in the car and he'll drive her back to the hotel. So she kind of can't say no, gets in. And he kind of says that everyone in the hotel is boring because no one wants to like chat. There's no camaraderie and all of this kind of thing. But the reader's kind of getting the idea that everyone's avoiding him purposefully. And there might be camaraderie, just not with him. And then he also, he says how... Um, He's laughing at that man who has the big mustache. And Mrs. Redfern goes like, oh, well, it's like, it's Hercule Poirot. You've never heard of him? And Mr. Horace Blatt is like, oh, of course I've heard of that name. And he's like really shocked that Poirot is on the island. Mrs. Redfern kind of, so you can see from the picture as well, the garage for the cars are on the mainland because you can't, the causeway is like, might may or may not be underwater. So he pulls into the garage to park and she has no interest of walking back to the hotel along the causeway with Mr. Blatt. So mm -hmm. she kind of fakes that she has to go into a shop. Apparently there's shops on the mainland. You can't, I don't think you can see them in the picture, but they're there. So she stops in and finds Linda Marshall, who's by one of the bookstalls in the shop um, reading. And as she approaches her, Linda like quickly puts the book she's reading back on the shelf and picks out a new one. And they, they end up, um, Mrs. Redfern tells her that she was escaping Mr. Blatt, and so they end up walking back together. I think the way it works is these books, you can pay to borrow them. Like, it was like 20 cents to borrow it or something. Right. But you weren't actually buying the book. 
So as they're walking back, Linda's kind of thinking to herself how she really likes Mrs. Redfern. And it's mostly because she doesn't talk. They just kind of like are able to be a peaceful silence together. And Linda thinks that's smart. She's like, if you've got nothing to say, like useless conversation is is dumb. Why yeah. have it? Very reasonable. Cameron, how, what's, what's your feeling on that subject? That's very reasonable. <laughs> very sensible. As you can see, Cameron is not going to make any more conversation because it's useless. Well, only useful conversation. <laughs> okay. On their on their walk back to the hotel, Linda asks Christine Redfern if she's ever felt that everything is just too awful and that you'll just burst. And Christine Redfern kind of silently acknowledges that and goes, yes, she has felt that. So what are you thinking so far? Uh, nothing's happened yet, and therefore nothing can be said. Cameron, tell me. I said maybe Kenneth kills Arlena to get out of the marriage. Okay. So later that afternoon, maybe in the evening, Mr. Blatt and Poirot are in the lounge chatting. And Blatt is saying to Poirot how he must be on a case right now. Like there's no way he's actually on vacation and that's impossible. And like, you can tell me, like, I'll keep the secret. Like, tell me what you're working on. And Poirot's kind of laughing. And he's like, why do you think, like, why do you think I'm not vacationing? And Mr. Black kind of says, well, this isn't the type of place you go. And he kind of mentions like St. Lou or some other places that have like casinos and are more maybe on the southern more coast. And Poirot kind of laughs and he goes, it's funny you say that because this doesn't seem like the type of place you would go either. I would think you would go to those types of places. And so they keep talking and they get onto the topic of sailing. And Mr. Black really likes to sail. And as they're talking about this, Mr. Redfern joins them who also love sailing, and sometimes they would actually go out together. And they talk about, or Redfern kind of gets onto the subject of that when he used to sail in this area as a kid, it was before this island had a hotel on it, and it used to just be an abandoned house. And there was a, in Pixie's Cove that still exists on the island, there's something called Pixie's Cave. And that's, it's something that like, it's really hard to find. And so it was like fun as a kid to like go around and try and find it. The locals don't really know about it anymore because the island is now more private. And so this is fun story. Cameron took me out sailing. Cameron likes to sail. He'll go up to our cottage and go sailing around Georgia Bay. And he took me out a month ago. I don't know when, but it was, okay. it was not a hot, hot day. It was, so here's how I describe it. The water on its own wasn't too cold. And the wind on its own wasn't too cold. But I was sitting at the front of the sailboat getting splashed and the water plus the wind, very cold. Wait, okay, wait, wait, no, I had a better description. It felt like you were on a lazy river just chilling. Because I wasn't doing anything. Cameron was doing all the work. I was in a lazy I wasn't river. Doing guys. <laughs> okay, well, I was in a lazy river, except there were kids just throwing buckets of water at me the entire like cold water the whole time. So it was lovely. Actually it was, I'd do it again. And by that, I mean, Cameron will take me sailing. I won't sail. I'll learn one day, maybe. Not that hard. <laughs> okay, so basically what I'm saying is we are like Mr. Redburn and Mr. Blatt, and then we also sail. I'm lumping myself in with you, Cam. Oh, yeah, no. You were half the work there. <laughs> so Redburn kind of finishes up this story, and Mr. Blatt, I think maybe he finishes his drink, and so he leaves and Redfern says that he's now, Redfern's talking to Poirot about his like opinions of Mr. Blatt and he says that he thinks he's like childlike or that's Mr. Redfern and his wife's opinion. 
and that they've been out sailing together a few times, but for the most part, Mr. Blatt likes to go alone. He prefers to be alone. And then Poirot tries, now that they're alone, Poirot tries to give Redfern some advice about women. And he's kind of saying that they can really complicate life. And then he asks Mr. Redfern, if you had to come here for this week, why did you bring your wife with you? And then Redfern gets super mad. And he's kind of like, yeah, he's angry. And he's going that you can't just listen to gossip and like why it's just people's tongues are wagging. Like they just want to make a scandal, but nothing's happening. Blah, 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 blah. So Poirot leaves him. He's like, okay, you don't want to take my advice? Sure. And gets out of there. So he goes out for a walk and finds none other than Mrs. Redfern kind of sitting on a bench looking all mopey and sad. And so they start to chat a little bit. Kind of what she's saying is she's just so frustrated with all the pity around the hotel. And everyone keeps calling her little Mrs. Redfern. But she's saying, I'm not I'm tall. Like, I'm not... I'm not tiny, but everyone just feels so bad for me that they're seeing me as a small person. And then she kind of breaks down crying. She's just so upset and tells Poirot to like go away that she wants to be alone. So on his way back to the hotel, Poirot hears some voices in one of the bushes and he picks them out as Arlena Marshall and Mr. Redfern's voice. And they're both kind of talking to each other, saying that they're crazy about each other, that they really care for each other. And so to him, all these suspicions have kind of been confirmed. And then as he rounds the corner, he runs into Captain Marshall. And it's his opinion, Captain Marshall also just heard everything that was said based on his like facial expressions. So the next morning, Linda is up early. She's up at eight and she's reading that small leather bound book that she had been reading in the bookshop that day and then shoved back on the shelf. And she says to herself, I'll do it. So she gets dressed to go bathing, like puts on her bathing dress and then her cover up and goes out to the, how it works is that outside the island, maybe near the back, there's like stairs that go right down to the water. And it's so that if you wanted to go for a swim in the morning, you don't have to like go all the way down to the beach. You can just go down these stairs and then go like down a ladder on the rock. And so she goes down the stairs, but then instead of going into the water, she sneaks around the hotel along the rocks and takes the causeway is, um, it's high tides, it's underwater, but she rows the boat into town. And then on her return, she gets into her room and finds Christine Redfern is in the room. And because she's kind of surprised to see her, she drops the package that she's carrying and candles roll out all over the floor. Cameron's, Cameron's shocked. This is mind blowing to him. <laughs> And Miss, Mrs. Redfern kind of kind of goes like, oh, what's this? And Linda says, oh, it was just a package that came by mail. And then Mrs. Redfern, the reason she had been there is that they had been, her and Linda had been going out, like sketching together or just like hanging out together around the island. And so she invites her to go. Um, she's going to sketch in Gull Cove around 1030. And Gull Cove is on the east side of the island. So it would be sunny in the morning. So there, Linda's going to go sunbathe. Mrs. Redfern is going to sketch. And so later, Linda runs into Rosamond as she's going down to meet Christine Redfern. She kind of says that she's late, but Rosamond points out, oh, don't worry, it's only 10.25, you've got time. And Linda invites Rosamond to come with them, but Rosamond says, oh, no, thank you. I was planning to go to Sunny Ledge to read a book. And so Sunny Ledge is uh, on the west side of the island, and it's kind of pretty close to the hotel near the bathing beach. And it's just like, there, I think there's benches up there that you can look out at the water. So at 10 a.m. Poirot is out on the beach and he's just, you know, hanging out. He's had breakfast. He's, he's just coming out to 
just relax, you know? And he sees Arlena is getting onto, there's like these wooden floats that you can go out on to paddle around. I feel like they're like um, those like paddle boards is kind of how I'm imagining them. Like you're able to lie completely on top of them without getting wet. So she's dressed like she's got her, um, you know, her sun hat, her green sun hat, her bathing dress on and like looks like she's ready to sunbathe. But she's getting out on this float and Sapporo goes into the water to help her stabilize it so she can get on without getting wet. She asks him for a favor and she says, don't tell anyone where I'm going. I want to be alone. And then she kind of like laughs and paddles out. And Sapporo watches her go. And just as she rounds the corner, so she's going to the west from the bathing beach. Just as she rounds that point, both Captain Marshall and Patrick Redfern come out onto the beach. And I think Captain Marshall maybe asks, like, Paro, have you seen my wife? And he kind of slyly doesn't answer the question. He just goes, like, oh, did she... Something about, like, oh, have you... You didn't have breakfast with her? Like, he asks some question like that that is avoiding the question but not telling him anything. So as the morning goes on, Redfern's sitting there. I think they're sitting up on the the terrace or whatever I called it before. What did I call the up... Upstairs part? Probably terrace. Probably terrace. Okay, so they're sitting up on the terrace. Redfern's sitting with them. And every time someone comes out of the hotel or, like, comes up from behind them, he, like, turns his head expectantly. And so it's pretty obvious he's waiting, waiting for someone. If you can guess who that someone is, Cameron. Who is this again? Mr. Redfern. Patrick Redfern. Mr. Redfern. Probably Arlena, then. Probably Arlena. <laughs> Good guess. He's not saying so, but that's everyone around him is thinking it. And the only person swimming that morning is Captain Marshall. A couple of the like families at the hotel are out on a picnic, which is conveniently out of the picture so that we don't have to talk about them. Handy. <laughs> As Captain Marshall finishes his swim, he kind of comes up to the terrace and says that he has a lot of work to do and that he, he can't hang out, so he goes into the hotel. And Mrs. Gardner, as before in previous days, she just goes on chattering about how her nerves are so terrible and how she wants to go on an excursion to Dartmoor and visit the penitentiary because what do you do when you're on vacation but go look at prisons and, you know, just all the great sights of the world. And then Paro asks Miss Brewster if she'll go swimming and she kind of says, oh, I already, I've already been. I used the, the morning like ladder, dip, pole, whatever thing. And then she says, actually, I got nearly got hit on the head. Someone threw a bottle out of their win- window. And then they kind of get into like discussing that topic of how, why do people steal garbage out of their window? Like it's so dangerous. You can really like get a concussion or get hurt from that kind of thing happening. Patrick Redfern continues to pace and pace and pace and kind of look around expectantly. And everyone's watching him interestedly because this is like the gossip, right? And it's like happening right there in front of you. It's real exciting. At some point, Mrs. Gardner runs out of wool. And so Mr. Gardner goes up to get it for her. And he actually takes a while while he's up there. And when he gets back, he says, oh, it, was, it wasn't where you said it was going to be. I had to look all over the room. Some minutes later after that happens, Mr. Redfern asks Miss Brewster if she's already been on her morning row because she would go take a boat and go rowing most mornings. And she says no. And so he asks if he can join her and they decide to go right around the island, like take it all the way around. And so they head out from the bathing beach and go west around the island. And Redfern starts as like the first rower. I think they're going to take turns. And as they kind of round the point, they see someone on Sunny Ledge. And they're kind of going, oh, it kind of looks like Rosamond, which makes sense because she'd gone there to read her book. 
Miss Brewster's kind of realizing that Redfern, Mr. Redfern is scanning the cliffs really attentively and it hits her, oh, he's looking for Arlena. He's trying to figure out where Arlena Marshall is. Like that's what's going on. And she's kind of upset about it because she's like feeling a little bit coerced into going for this row. And so as they round the next point and come up on Pixie Cove, they notice uh, it looks like someone's um, sunbathing on the beach. And you can kind of see Mr. Redfern like perks up a little bit. And he's like, oh, it looks like someone's bathing. We should go check it out. And Miss Brewster's like, "Uh, no, like let's keep our row. But because she's not rowing, she can't control anything. And Mr. Redfern steers the boat and goes to, you know, go to the beach. And so they get there and... Mrs. Brewster kind of describes how she has this feeling of foreboding as they're coming up to the beach, like something's going to happen. And so they get up onto the beach and they see the like bronzed limbs of Miss like Arlena. She was, it would make sense for her to be sunbathing. That's what she did all day. And she's got her green hat on, but something looks really unnatural about the way she's lying there. Like the body had been thrown is how they describe it. And the idea is what's going to happen, Cameron. I think Arlena is going to be dead. Oh, wow. They, are you sure? Seems ridiculous I for this time. I money on or anything, but you know. <laughs> Cameron, you are right. Redfern kind of kneels down beside her and feels her arm and it's cold. Okay. And then he looks under her hat and sees the strangulation marks on her neck and kind of gasps and says she's been strangled. And so both him and Miss Brewster kind of, obviously the police need to be notified right away, but they think someone should stay with the body to make sure, I guess, no one tampers with it or anything like that. Or just Emily Brewster's like, basically says, you stay with the body, I'll row out and get the police from the mainland. So she heads out. Okay, wait, first, before I move on, how are you feeling about all this, Cam? Um, so obviously Kenneth would be way too obvious because... You know. Oh, you're taking the Dwight approach from The Office. It can't be the most obvious. It can't be the least obvious. It has to be the most middlest obvious. That's not well, the... these, these mystery authors, they try and trick you, don't they? They do try and trick you, Cameron. Like in a normal situation, it would be the most obvious. Okay, you're right. It's always, it's always the husband or the wife. That's how the things go. It's the most obvious. Also, he... Remember my excuse before? He would want to kill her to get rid of her so he could not divorce her. Right. Yes. So are you saying it is or it isn't? It isn't. Because ah, it's too obvious. It's too obvious. Okay. Do you have any any thoughts on anyone else? But or it's, I know it's too early. I'm just. I do you have any gut feelings? Is what I'm asking for. Um. No. Okay. So you want to keep going? Might as well. You stop me if you do have a gut feeling. I want to hear it. Okay. Of course. Okay. So we kind of jump to the police have arrived and we meet Inspector Colgate and he's standing standing around on the beach while the police surgeon examines the body. And the police surgeon kind of stands up and he goes, yep, she was strangled by really strong hands. And it looks like she was taken by surprise because she didn't struggle at all. And Miss Brewster says, Miss Brewster had looked at her watch and knew that they had found the body, I think seen it, got onto the beach at 11.45 and some probably rounded the corner into the cove around 11.40. So based on that, the doctor puts the time of death. He thinks it could be no earlier than 10.45 and then no later than 11.40, so sometime between that hour. You might want to write down times for this. There's going to be a lot of, for everyone, if, if, if you really want to try and solve this on your own, I would write down times. There's going to be a lot of them. Sorry, what was the time she died? So oh. they're putting the time of death between 10.45 and 11.40 a.m. All right. So Poirot meets the 
this is like jump back to the hotel. The chief constable, Chief Constable Weston, is meeting with Poirot in the hotel. And he's kind of, he's obviously heard of Poirot. I think he's worked with him before. And so he's happy to have him as help on the case. And so Poirot tells him all about the morning, how everything had happened. And he says, Arlena had left the beach around 10, 15, because he had helped her. And that they both agree that it would have taken her around 30 minutes to paddle around on one of these, um, like whatever paddleboard floaty things. So it makes sense that she would have arrived there around 10 45, like that fits in with the times. And then the police, and when I say the police, I'm talking about Inspector Colgate, Chief Constable Weston, and for the most part, throwing in Poirot because he's kind of tailing, following him around at this point. They go to interview the owner of the hotel, who is a woman named Mrs. Castle, and she's very clearly upset. And when this kind of thing happens in any of these books, it's like, the hotel proprietor, whatever, their first reaction is how terrible this is going to be for business and the press is going to be so bad and all that kind of thing. So that's where her focus is at. And then she kind of says, she she's saying, no, there should be, there would be no outsiders on the island. The hotel is only for hotel guests. Like no one else is allowed to use it. The police are trying to get out, uh, get at how do you stop other people from entering the island? And what they get to basically is that on the causeway, there's a gate at the mainland entrance with signs that say private hotel guests only. So not the most secure thing ever. Like, it's not right. like you need a key or anything like that. But the causeway was closed. Uh, it's the water. It, I, when, uh, during high time, but not... They would have had to come day. over beforehand. Theoretically, yeah. Or taken a boat. Or taken a boat. So it does. it is kind of saying it, this would definitely make it harder. You're right. They're not ruling it out, or the police aren't ruling it out. Um, and then she's saying that her, the other thing is that, like, the other way they keep people off are his, her employees are always on the lookout at the bathing beach, because that's where people normally go to bathe, but not necessarily, they're not everywhere all at once. But if they did see anyone, they would kick them off. So next, the first kind of hotel guest that they sit down with to interview is Captain Marshall, obviously, Captain Kenneth, Captain Kenneth Marshall. And he seems quite calm, which is a little bit surprising since he's the husband. And he kind of says that they've been married for four years. Uh, she had recently quit the stage. It hadn't been something he necessarily wanted, uh, but it was of her own accord. Like he said, he kind of was saying she's free to do whatever she wants. Like she's my wife, but like she's her own person. And that he's kind of saying, yes, possibly she had enemies. And the police jump on that. But he's kind of like any woman, like women hated her. So it's. There's, it could have been any number of people that didn't like her, but I couldn't give you any specifics. And then he says that he had last seen his wife when he had looked in on her on his way down to breakfast. So Arlena Marshall would have breakfast in bed, but he went down for it. Mm -hmm. And when he went in there, she was opening letters. That's the last time she he had seen her. And that was around, I think, 9-ish, 9.30. And he says that it was normal for her to come down between 10 and 11, but it was normally closer to 11. So the fact that she was out around 10 a.m. that morning was kind of surprising. It was not her, was not her normal. So then they question him about his wife's friendship with Mr. Renfern. They're kind of like saying, did she, like, did they know each other well? Had they met each other before? And he gets upset about this. And he says that the police, basically he's saying, you can choose to believe whatever gossip you want, but my wife isn't here to defend herself. And I'm not, I'm not going to believe this dumb gossip. You can if you want. And then he goes into his movements. And so there are, the police are obviously going to ask everyone where they were at different points of the day. So 
Marshall says, so he'd been on the beach swimming and people had seen him. And then from there, he'd gone up to his room around 10.50 to type some letters. So he had gotten, he had gotten a couple letters in the mail that morning that were requiring him to act upon right away. And so he says he had been there typing for an hour until 11.50 when he had stopped to get ready for tennis at 12. And he had been playing tennis with Mrs. Redfern, Miss Darnley, and Mr. Gardner. And then he gives them the letters and he says, this should be as good an alibi as anyway, as anything. There's no way it would take less than an hour to type these letters. Like I type pretty fast. So that's, that's what he's saying. Um, and that the housekeeper would have heard him typing because she was kind of working in that area at the time. And then he, had, he kind of says that he has no idea how his wife would have disposed any property that she owned. And he gives them the lawyer's address but he doesn't think there's any will. He kind of says that his wife thought that writing a will was bad luck. Like if you wrote one, you were gonna die. So she, he doesn't think she'd written one, which meant that if she died without a will, he would inherit anything she had. And the police go, oh, well, like she wouldn't have a lot of money, right? Because you're, you're the rich guy, or not rich guy, but you know, you're the one with the money. And he kind of goes, oh, well, that's not true. Two years ago, she had been left 50,000 pounds. Five zero by that old guy that she had been having an affair with. <laughs> so he leaves and they start to wonder who else could be suspected based on the medical evidence. And so the kind of issue is, is that whoever killed her had to have been really strong and like the finger marks on her neck are pretty large. So they're, it, all of it suggests that it's a man. So Kenneth Marshall is, would have been a really good guess based on that. And then they talk about that the other person that would have motive was Mrs. Redford, but her hands are too small. And they're kind of saying like she's not a, I, they don't think she could overpower Arlena Marshall. It would have been like if she wanted her dead, she would have like poisoned her. That would have been more heroic. Right. So then the police are looking over the guest list and Poirot is giving some descriptions of some of the people they haven't met yet. And so he's talking about the gardeners and saying they're like a middle-aged married couple he says that Mr. Redfern is attractive to women and that his wife has brains is how he's describing her. Like she's smart. And then he says, Mr. Blatt likes to talk about himself and that the night before when they had been having a conversation, he had seemed really uneasy. Like he'd seemed nervous. He also says that Rosamond is an old friend of Captain Marshall and that Emily Brewster is gruff and hearty and has a deep voice. That's like his description of all these people. And then Poirot was kind of thinking out loud, who did Arlena Marshall go to meet? Because to him, when she'd gone off, she'd said she wanted to be alone, but just Arlena's personality was she always wanted to be around someone. So that idea to him seems, it, he, he had a thought immediately when she had left that he, she was going off to meet Redfern. But when Redfern had come onto the beach, basically shortly afterwards and hadn't left that whole morning, he was like, okay, it couldn't have been Redfern. Is there another man? Is his thought process. So they, they stew on that for a little bit. And then they invite Linda Marshall into the room to talk to her. And she's described as like a startled young colt. And that description comes up several times throughout the book and that she's like kind of stumbling into things or just, I think the description is meant to be like that she's awkward because she's young. She's still be like a child, how they call her. Yeah, young child. 16. No wonder. <laughs> That's how you would describe her as well, Cameron? Well, just going off what I've heard. Okay. Um, she says that she had not seen Arlene at all that morning and explains that she had gone for a swim and then she had went with Mrs. Redfern to Gull Cove for the whole morning. 
And she said, so while they were in Gulf Cove, Christine Redfern had sketched while Linda had sunbathed. And then at 1145, Christine had left to go for, get ready for her tennis game. And Linda had just gone into the water and swam again. And they asked her how she knows the time. And she said she's sure of it because she had checked her watch as Christine Redfern was leaving. And then the inspector Colgate looks at it to check the time and sees that it's correct. Hmm. And then she says she had gotten back around one to the hotel. And she said Arlena had been quite kind to her and that she had liked her. And the only person she can think of that would want Arlena dead would be Mrs. Redfern. But that's kind of like it's impossible because she had been with her the whole morning. So next they see Patrick Redfern. And right away he kind of comes clean about knowing Arlena previously. And so he admits that they had met at like a cocktail party a couple of months previously. But they had actually seen quite a lot of each other, the nuts going up to that. And then so they they ask him, oh, well, did your wife know? And he's like, oh, I, I might have mentioned it. And then they press him. He's like, okay, maybe she didn't know about it. He's kind of describing her as that that Arlena had just this effect on men. And so he's, he's like, I knew what she was doing to me, but at the same time, I couldn't stop it. And that he would have agreed to do anything she liked. Like he was completely under her spell. He says that Arlena was a little worried about her husband finding out what was going on, but that he had had any had, had no appointment with her that morning. He wasn't, they're kind of asking, were you supposed to go meet her somewhere? And he's like, oh, no, we didn't normally do that in the morning if we hadn't meetings together they were in the afternoon um, and the reason for that is that in the afternoon Gull Cove would be um, in the shade and so no one would go there so they could easily meet at Gull Cove in the afternoon. They ask him about Pixie Cove and he says they'd never meet at Pixie Cove because a lot of the time swimmers would kind of come by or people on boats would go around the corner to the west and would be able to see in so they it wasn't like as secluded a spot to meet. So he leaves and the police kind of start thinking about other possibilities and they're kind of thinking it's possible that Captain Marshall could have typed out those letters beforehand and then just said it was his alibi later. What do you think about that? If he just received the letters and if there's some way of proving that, I'm not sure there would be. He mentioned the housekeeper would have heard him typing. So we're kind of we're just waiting for more information, you think? Do you have any thoughts about anyone else that we've heard from? Didn't we say there was someone on the uh, cliff there, the ledge, wouldn't she have seen what was going on? So yeah, so the sunny ledge is here. So you're saying she would have seen people pile by. She wouldn't have been able to see right into Pixie Cove. No, she course. was looking out at the at the ocean. But I guess she would have seen Arlene pass by. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely going to want to ask her about that when they talk to her. Yeah, theoretically, she could have seen anything. Any thoughts about Redfern or Linda as well? Mr. Redfern. Yeah, Mr. Redfern. Clearly, he's not. He didn't do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wanna keep going? Sure. Next, Christine Redfern enters the room. And so she starts kind of talking about like what her movements were for the day. That's what they want to know about her. And so she had said she'd gone to Linda's room early that morning to fix the time that they'd meet up after breakfast to go sketching. And then she had gone to breakfast. And from there, she'd gotten her sketching clothes, uh, not sketching clothes, gotten her sketching equipment, I guess like paints or whatever, pencils, paper. Sketching hat. Sketching hat. She got whatever she needed and they had gone to Gull Cove. And then she says she'd left Gull Cove to come back to get changed for tennis around 11.45. And they kind of ask her, how are you sure of the time? She says, oh, well, I didn't have my watch with me, but I just asked Linda and Linda was able to tell me. 
Then Poirot asks if she was sure that Linda actually entered the water as she was leaving. And this kind of takes Christine by surprise. And she goes, oh, well, I'm pretty sure, like, I heard splashing as I was going up, going up out of Gull Cove. So I'm pretty sure. And then they ask how she kind of feels about the death. And she says that the death was a horrible thing. But when pressed on it, she admits that she wasn't surprised and she's not upset. Like, she's not sad by this death. And she's kind of saying the reason she was not surprised is that Arlena was the kind of woman that would come into this kind of situation because she thinks she's the type of woman who gets mixed up in blackmail, jealousy, violence, etc., all types of those kinds of things. And so at this moment, Colonel Weston, the kind of chief constable police guy, he pounces on the one word she said from that whole sentence. Do you want to guess what it was? Blackmail. Blackmail. Yeah, you nailed it. Okay. So he goes like, why did you say that? Why do you say blackmail? As they ask her, Mrs. Redfern, she gets all awkward in her answer. And she kind of goes, oh, it's because I overheard a conversation. And so she she's kind of telling Poirot, like, you remember the other night, a couple nights ago, we were all playing bridge in the lounge. And I was the dummy and had stepped out to kind of get a breath of fresh air. I don't know how to play bridge. And I don't know what a dummy is. But they talk about it a lot in these books. I've never looked it up and I don't plan to because I don't know. If someone ever wants to teach me bridge, I'd learn. Do you know how to play bridge? I have no idea. There you go. It just seems like a game. For old people. Oh. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say that. I guess nowadays, but maybe it's because no one knows how to play. They could learn if they wanted to. I guess so. I know how to play hearts. So it's similar? I don't know. I'm just naming games. I can play gin. I can play none of those games. Oh. Look at me. Look at me, guys. I'm so much better than Cameron. Everyone praise me. This one's older. Oh, burn. Okay, you got me. Um, so let's get back to Arlena. So she's kind of saying she'd stepped out while they were playing bridge. She'd gone, kind of gone off walking towards the, I don't know, towards the ocean or whatever. She was just going on a quick walk. Or not even a walk, but, you know, just, just stepping out. And she'd heard from like the bushes near her when she passed somewhere, Arlena's voice speaking with a man and she couldn't pinpoint the man's voice because it was too quiet. She, could, she said she could barely hear it. But yet she had heard Arlena saying that she couldn't get more money, that her husband would suspect something. And then the man had said something along the lines of, I'm not taking excuses. Hmm. So Mrs. Redfern leaves and she kind of leaves as the police continue to discuss that this could solve who Arlena was going to meet at Pixie Cove. Like, this might be the answer to that. And But then they're also saying a blackmailer wouldn't kill the person they're blackmailing, right? That's your cash cow. That's your source of income. So the extortion, they were threatening to kill her in exchange for money? And because she didn't give them the money? They had to kill her. So it's not blackmail, it's extortion. Not or something. Yeah, it's possible. So they're just they're just kind of mentioning that. And then they're saying, who could it be? Because if it's a man's voice, and again, we're agreeing that a man killed her, who's around? Who's left on the island? And so they go through, there's Mr. Lane, who had gone out for a hike and actually is still on the hike. He hasn't come back yet. And then there was Mr. Blatt, who had gone out for sale in the morning and again, isn't back yet. And then there's Mr. Gardner, there's Mr. Redfern, there's Captain Marshall. But I guess they're saying, so Mr. Redfern had been on, been on the terrace the whole day. If that alibi with the letters is true, Captain Marshall is out of it. And they say, was um, the police kind of ask, oh, Mr. Gardner was on the terrace the whole day as well. But Poirot points out, well, he did go 
to fetch some wool for his wife at some point. So no, he there was a chunk of time where he was away. And Poirot, of course. And Poirot, of course. Yes, Cameron, good point. Everyone, everyone's a suspect. Don't yeah. forget it. <laughs> Poirot was also on the terrace the whole day, though, so he kind of was out of If we could take his word for it. If we, you're right. Cameron, genius. <laughs> Listeners yeah. at home, take note. We're not leaving anyone out of this. So the next people that come into the room are Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. And Mrs. Gardner is kind of going on about it because of her nerves. Like, she's so... She gets so freaked out about these things that like she couldn't possibly do this interview alone and she hopes the police will understand, but Mr. Gardner had to be with her and all that kind of thing. And th this is this type of woman that always exists where they're just so chatty and no one can get a word in edgewise. So the inspector will go to like ask a question and Mrs. Gardner will just keep talking. She just keeps going on. And they both say neither of them had actually seen Arlena at all that um, during the day and that they had watched Redfern pacing back and forth. And they kind of wondered, they wondered about, they, every, they as well as everyone, and they're kind of saying, you already knew this, but clearly, like, we, we all thought that he was waiting for Arlena to come out to meet him. And then they say, I think Mrs. Gardner says, if Captain Marshall had any sense, he'd marry Miss Most Rosamond Darnley. Like, that's her opinion of this whole matter, is that now that she's out of the way, now they can get married. Then they interview um, Miss Emily Brewster, and she doesn't add too much of any value, but she kind of gives her two cents about what she thinks happened. And she kind of says, with a, with a woman of this kind, finding the murderer should be easy. And the police are kind of like, okay, what do you mean by that? And she says, oh, well, I'll admit I did not like Arlena because I was part of the family that she got the inheritance from, and it didn't come to our, us. So she kind of has some, per some personal experience. And she's like, not only was the affair a scandal to begin with, but then the money thing was on top of that. And then she says she's heard of another story of a younger man from London who had done like some fishy business with shares to get money to give to Arlena. He was almost prosecuted, but like something like the last minute was able to be fixed. And now like and then he moved out to China or something like that to get away from it. So she's going... There, I think there are going to be plenty of people from her past or present that you'll find that could have done this. So she leaves, and then finally they have Miss Rosamond Darnley comes in. And they ask her for her movements. She said she'd gone to breakfast, and then she had left for Sunny Ledge to read her book around 10.25. And then she had come back to the hotel around 11.50 to get ready for that tennis game that they were going to have. She says she's, she never saw Mrs. Marshall that day, but they ask her kind of the, that same question that you were asking, Cam, of if she was sitting on Sunny Ledge, she should have seen boats or Arlena Marshall passing to get to Pixie Cove or like anything out in the bay, really, she should have seen. And she kind of goes, I saw, like, I saw absolutely nothing. I'm sure she did pass me, but I was so engrossed with my book. I, whenever I looked up, there was no one out on the water. Like I didn't hear anything, I wouldn't have seen anything. And then they ask her if she likes she liked him or I guess they ask her opinion of Arlena and she's the first person to be flat out like yeah no I didn't like her um just very honest but because she's like a dressmaker and like a fashion person she said she would have loved to dress Arlena because Arlena had great style and a good figure and had a lot of money and would have been able to pay for things so she's a little disappointed about that and then she's super surprised about the blackmail idea and her kind of reasoning is is like she's like Arlena just seemed like the person who was always not open but pretty, I guess, I guess the word I do want to use is open about her affairs. Like she didn't want her husband to know, but at the same time, she wasn't necessarily careful. So she, for her, 
blackmailing she's like i don't know maybe it's something else but i don't think it would be blackmailing her about that what are other reasons for blackmail do you think besides an affair mm -hmm. which it still could have been but maybe she killed somebody i don't know <laughs> that would be a reason blackmail <laughs> captain marshall's first wife was on trial for murder exactly mm -hmm. So then the three men, the two police inspectors, and Parel go up to Arlena's room where they find the letters, some letters that it looks like Arlena had kept from specific men. So they find a couple from Redfern and they're kind of, the police are going, men never learn. If they write letters to women, they never burn them even if they say they are or they, they say they have. So that's what they're thinking. And then they find a letter from another man whose initials are just JN. And the letter kind of says, I'm going to China. Thanks so much for the check. Um, I I want to be able to, if, if this kind of works out, like I want to be able to buy you diamonds and emeralds and put like emeralds around your neck or stuff like that. Yours forever, JN. Like that's kind of the gist of the letter. And Porto says that's, it's very, that letter is very kind of eye-opening. So then they go to Kenneth Marshall's room. So Arlena Marshall and Kenneth Marshall married, but staying in separate rooms. I think that's normal for this time to have, for a married couple to have their own rooms. Mm. I think it was normal for both, for them to share a room or to have separate rooms. Right. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything is all I'm saying. Just because I feel like today, in today's day and age, you might think that's really weird, but this comes up a bunch. Um, and so they find the letters that he had gotten that morning and they are post-stamped, like, or stamped from that morning. So they're going to check up to make sure they did arrive, but they, it looks truthful. Um, and it's the letters asking him for, like, these specific, I think it's, like, finance stuff that they're asking for. And that um, Inspector Colgate says he's going to test how long it would take to type them. So he kind of gets to work on that. And then the other two go into Linda's room where... Basically, they find nothing interesting. They don't expect to because it was strangulation. There's no, not going to be any murder weapon. So it's not. They were kind of thinking had Captain Marshall killed her, maybe he'd want he'd hide something in his daughter's room. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's nothing to hide. So it's not like they're going to find anything. So they don't see anything interesting except Poirot notices in the grate of the fire, there's some like burnt stuff. And it's a, a regular blob of like candle wax. And then there's fragments of green paper and card and what looks like it's like a green like flip calendar because there's a half burnt like date. Um, there's an ordinary sewing pin and what looks like he calls it burnt animal matter that kind of looks like hair. So he looks around the room even further. This just like catches his attention and he finds a small leather bound book that's been hidden in behind the other books on the shelf. And when he opens the book, his suspicions are confirmed. But he doesn't say what the book is. So Satanic rituals, obviously. That's what you're thinking? And why are you thinking that? Well, it's a leather bound book. Yeah. And she had burned hair. Mm -hmm. That's it. Okay. Also, she's keeping it a secret. What about the candles and the pin? I don't know. I'm not familiar with rituals. <laughs> They'll probably come up sometime. You have never performed satanic rituals, Cameron? Well, not enough of them to really have a good <laughs> idea of what they're involved. Okay, fair enough. Well, I know what we're doing after recording this episode. So they leave the room, and at the end of the hall is the stair to that bathing rock that I kind of mentioned before that people would use if they wanted to go for a swim in the morning. And they notice that the path, you go down the stairs, and then there would be like a ladder to go down the rocks, but there's also a path that leads right around the island. And so they kind of find this interesting. They're like, oh, if Captain Marshall wasn't typing those letters, that's a way he could have gotten out without being seen. 
And then I speak with the housekeeper. They go find her. And she said she had heard that she hadn't seen Captain Marshall go into his room, but she had heard the typewriter at 1155. But she hadn't heard it very much past that because she had moved on to rooms farther down the hall. And then she had moved on to a whole new wing. And she also says while she was in Miss Darnley's bathroom, it's very likely that she wouldn't have heard anyone passing in the hall, like anyone coming in or out. So they're thinking again, Captain Marshall could have gotten out theoretically without being heard or seen. And then she thought, she kind of talks about how they're asking her opinion of Miss Marshall. And she's like, oh, well, like she was very beautiful. And her, the kind of one of the things she says is that she thinks Mrs. Marshall was afraid of her husband knowing about the goings on with Mr. Redfern. That's her opinion of the two of them. So she says she had done, Poirot's asking now, he's like, when did you do Linda's room? And she says, oh, I did around 9.15 and I haven't been back in since. And no, there was nothing in the grate of the fire when I did her room. So then they ask her who had been swimming that morning. And she said, based on like the bathing costumes, bathing dresses, Captain Marshall and Mr. Redfern had gone swimming in that hallway, in like that hallway. And so they go, what about... Linda, and she said, oh, no, her bathing dress was dry. She hadn't been swimming. So worried about that. We already know the answer, I feel like, though. Well, it's obvious she could have picked the time. So I can't rely on that. And she might have been the one typing to cover for her father. Mm. She hadn't been swimming before 9.15, is what I was saying. Like, she remember, okay. remember when I said she went to, she got, like, got her bathing dress ready and then went down to go swimming, but actually, like, snuck around and went into right. town? Right, 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 okay. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah. So we know that she snuck into town, but the police don't know that. I see. Yeah. So this is this is news that her bathing dress was dry at 9.15 when she told them that she had been swimming in the morning. That's all. Oh, and then they ask, because they're, like, thinking about that bottle that got thrown out the window, they ask if she noticed a bottle missing, and she said... She hadn't noticed anything particular from anyone's room, but if it was missing from Mrs. Marshall's room, she had so many bottles that she would never notice. And that's because, like, this time, like, all your cosmetics were in bottles. I'm picturing glass bottles, but I'm sure it could have been plastic. Was there plastic in 1940? God, I should know this. Yes. Okay. Not per se. Would have been. I don't know. So it, it doesn't matter, but, like, all, everything would have been in these, these bottles. And so all her creams and makeup and whatever... In bottles is kind of how they put it and so mrs um mrs marshall just based on her personality would have had too many but if any anything was missing she would never have noticed that's all they're getting at and then Poirot asks her can you think of anything funny that happened this morning in this this like wing of the hotel and she thinks to herself and she goes oh well i don't think it relates to anything but someone ran a bath around noon and that just seemed weird like who who was a bath in the middle of the day camera if you imagine oh my gosh <laughs> It's like, that's lunchtime. Like, you should be eating. Who eats that here? <laughs> so then Inspector Colgate kind of comes back to join them. He's been, like, he's been trying to, he's typing this whole time to figure out about the letters. And he confirms that there's no way the letters, the three letters that he had typed could be done in under an hour. They were too complicated. And they were also definitely done this morning. They had, like, confirmed that the, the letters had come in earlier in the day. And there's, he couldn't have done them, like, on a dip, like a day before. He couldn't have typed it and then had this free time. So then Rosamond comes into their conference room and she says she had forgotten. She had forgotten when she was telling them, like, what she had done that morning. That while she was reading her book, she actually had gone back to the hotel around 11.15 because she had forgotten her glare glasses. And she was actually, she said... She didn't think it'd be that difficult to read, but she was finding it difficult, so she had gone in. 
And on her way out, she popped her head in to Captain Marshall's room to kind of tell him, come out and enjoy the nice weather. But he just looked so busy that she didn't want to bother him. So she, she left him there to type. And also says she hadn't said anything. She just popped her head in. So he actually hadn't noticed her. So then they decide to go search the beach. I think they had left like a police sergeant on the beach to like look for clues, as they say. And so they're going to go over to do that. And as they're kind of discussing, Mrs. Castle comes in to let them know that Mr. Lane is back from his hike, if they'd Mm -hmm. like to talk to him. And she also tells them that a couple had come by wanting to picnic on the island, but she had turned them away and said, there's a police investigation going on. You can't come in. And she just, she just kind of goes, I thought I should tell you, like, you should know everything about the goings on. So Mr. Lane comes in and he talks about his like big, he's, he's a reverend and his big thing is like evil and the devil and what was going on. And he kind of says that he, he was like, I told you Paro, right? Like we talked about this. I knew, I knew that she was evil surrounded this lady. Everything like he's going on about evil and the devil. And it's partly probably in due to his like field of study or like the fact that he's a reverend, that he's interested in all of this but he, he's going on about how Poirot like you and I were just having this conversation like that woman like Arlena she's the personification of evil and like I knew something like this would happen just like evil follows her and he could feel it like that kind of thing and then they ask him like what were your whereabouts and he says oh well I hiked I wanted to see this church that's about seven miles away so I hiked there and on his way he says he saw no one but he did sign his name in the like guest book at the church also this church was like wasn't was near a town but it wasn't in a town and there was no one at the church when he got there so he, no one can kind of like confirm this statement that's what he said he was, he was doing that day and then Poirot invites him to come on the boat kind of before I think Mr. Lane asks to come see the beach or something and like come with them and the inspector is about to say no when Poirot jumps in and is like yes come with us and they get in a boat for Patrick Renfer to row them there because the only way they get to Pixie Cove is to go down it's got like a ladder, like a uh, steep ladder. And Poirot's like, I don't do ladders. Poirot also doesn't like boats, but I guess he like chooses the lesser of two evils. <laughs> so they get to Pixie's Cove and the police meet them there. They go on foot and I think they arrive around the same time. And the sergeant who's there shows them everything they found. So he had found a new pair of scissors, an empty gold flake packet. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Five bottle caps a bunch of Muse matches, three pieces of string, fragments of a newspaper, fragment of a smashed pipe, four buttons, an empty bottle of sun lotion. And he says he had found both the fragment of the smashed pipe and the new pair of scissors at the bottom of the ladder. And so he's kind of thinking someone probably dropped them while they were climbing up the ladder. So we're kind of trying to decide if any of this is useful. And they, they kind of say, oh, well, who who smokes, smokes a pipe we'll have to like look into that and see if that's useful and then the reason they brought Redfern with them is to help them find the cave because he knew where Pixie's cave were or where Pixie's cave was and so he shows them and Poro, Mr. Lane and Inspector Weston go into the cave and as soon as they get in there Poro's kind of smelling the air and he kind of goes like to his refined nose he can smell perfume and so he's kind of making a note of what that is and so they look around and they don't see anything on kind of the ground of the cave, but they do see there's like a ledge up high. And so they get Mr. Lane to reach, because he's the tallest, to reach up and kind of reach around. And at the very back of this ledge, he pulls down a lunch tin that's kind of like this tin box marked sandwiches. 
And so they bring it out into the beach and, and when they open it, there's a bunch of different containers in it and every single container looks like it's full of salt, but they taste it. It's not salt. They think, Cameron, what do you think it is? It's blood. Oh. It looks like salt, Cameron. Um, sure. Okay. It's not sugar. You got this, Cameron. Baking soda. Cameron. <laughs> I can't tell if you're making fun of me. It's a murder mystery. Think of something cool. Uh, bile. God. Is everyone at home just as annoyed as I am? It's drugs, Cameron. Oh. It's drugs. Cocaine. <laughs> well, we don't know that, but it's, I see. They think it's drugs. I see. God, Cameron. Get your mind in the gutter. I see. That'll give you could something be, to think it about. It could be drugs, dude. <laughs> okay. So, back at the hotel, the police and Poro are discussing the drug addict possibility. They're kind of going... Was Arlena a drug addict? Poirot's going, no, I really don't think so. She didn't have any of the traits of a drug addict. He's encountered quite a few, Cameron. Believe me. And as they're discussing this, Horace Blatt enters. And so Mr. Blatt is one of the, he was sailing the whole day. So he hasn't been interviewed yet. And he's kind of saying he just returned and isn't his luck when anything exciting happens, he's away for it. And they agree. He's like, the police agree on Poirot's description of him. He's a larger-than-life personality. He's, like, asking them all these questions. He seems very pushy, and the police kind of have to go, we're the ones asking the questions here. Like, we're not answering what you're asking us. So he tells them his movements. He had left the hotel to go sailing around 9.45. He'd been all by himself heading towards Plymouth, but the wind wasn't that good, so he actually hadn't gotten that far before he turned around. And I think he just offers up his opinion, and he kind of says he thinks it was Marshall based on stories that he's heard about Marshall from around town. Apparently, according to him, Marshall had assaulted a man, but the man hadn't left, like, hadn't placed charges because he was afraid of what was going to happen to him. So he's kind of, he's kind of saying, like, this kind of character Captain Marshall is. And as, so he gets up and leaves, and Poirot says to the police that he thinks that Platt is nervous and that his loudness and, like, talkativeness is a cover-up for that fact. Like, that's his opinion. Then Inspector Colgate comes back and he's calculated, but he's like got some of his sergeants to run slash walk the time from the hotel to Pixie's Cove. And they've timed it the fastest you could get there by walking away from the hotel normally. And then as soon as you're out of sight, running like hell to the to Pixie's Cove would be three minutes. But if you walked normally the whole way, it would take you about 15. So that's the kind of, they're giving, could someone make it there really quickly? Theoretically, yes. If they're athletic. And then they, they go through who smokes a pipe because they're thinking about pipe fragment. And so Marshall, Blatt, and Lane all smoked pipes. Marshall had mentioned earlier in the day that he had misplaced one of his pipes, but they're not sure if any are actually missing because every, every one of them had at least one pipe in their room, but it would be normal to have more than one. So are some of them missing? We're not sure. Then Marshall comes by to pick up. He had left them those letters earlier in the day and he kind of wants to mail them out. And so they gave them back to him. And he, they tell him, like, oh, you, uh, you have a better alibi now because Miss Darnley says she saw you typing earlier in the day. And he kind of is maybe a little surprised by this, but then goes, oh, well, no, I did see her. I saw her in the mirror. I just didn't say anything, and I didn't turn around. So he leaves, and then the doctor comes in who had been examining the white salt-like su- substance in the lunch pail, and he goes, the stuff was heroin. Tell me what you're thinking, because Cameron's Cameron's looking at me all confused and skeptical. I thought it was cocaine. I was skeptical. sure sure it was cocaine. Okay, that's why. Okay, 
So I, that's a good point. When I think white substance, I think cocaine too, but I don't actually know what heroin looks like. I guess dissolve it, it in water and then inject it. Yeah. I picture it to be black, but that's because I think from uh, Cardian Humanity. So now they have this new kind of outlook on, on things. So a few days later, the inquest is held in town and Rosamond and Kenneth Marshall are leaving together. And there's kind of this idea that all the village people are murmuring and kind of not pointing, but looking at Kenneth Marshall and going, oh, that's the husband, dear, that's the husband. Of course, there's reporters and photographers around. And Rosamond tells him that he just needs to, he just needs to face it. Like he just needs to kind of like look it in the eyes and just take it. And that she knows that that's not his normal way, but that with a situation like this, you kind of just have to, and that it's, it's good for him. And he kind of agrees with her, but says it's not pleasant. And they're walking along the causeway back to the hotel when Linda comes out from the hotel to meet them. And then her and Rosamond go off on a walk on the path to the kind of opposite side of the island. Linda's clearly upset. And that's why Rosamond goes to walk with her, as she can tell. And she's trying to tell her that she needs to not mind so much. It's a, If it, sorrow is one thing, and she was actually upset and sad for Arlena's death. But she's kind of saying, you didn't even really like her. Like... If this, this is just shock and you, you should be able to get over shock and I understand it's really difficult, but like, you'll be fine. And Linda's saying, you don't understand me. Like no one understands. And if only you knew what I knew. And Rosamond jumps on this and goes, what do you know? And Linda won't say anything. She kind of goes, never mind, never mind. She won't say. So Rosamond kind of grips her, like grabs her arm and says, you need to try and forget. You have to forget. You have to hold your tongue. What are you thinking? Um, maybe it was Kenneth, considering you were pushing me back and I said it was too obvious. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe, maybe that was on purpose. No, no, that was, yeah, it was a good trick. Messing your mind, no, Cameron. Very well done. So Linda keeps going on this subject. She says she's been worrying about her mother and that her mother was a murderer, like where she right. was a potential murderer. And then she's going, so maybe father doesn't really mind about murder. Maybe he doesn't care. And Rosamond kind of cries out that the police, they know now that he couldn't have done it. Kenneth couldn't have done it. He kind of ends at that. So this, that whole kind of section is just, it leaves you going, what? What is happening? I don't know. Is that how you feel? That's how I feel. Oh, yeah. I know. That's crazy. <laughs> so now Poirot is done. He's been going around with the police asking questions. But now he's ready to get started on his own investigation. He's going out on his own. So he's starting to go to individuals. So he starts with Christine Redfern. And he starts by asking, why were you embarrassed? When you were talking to us the other day about meeting Linda in her room, it felt like you were avoiding something. It felt like you weren't telling me everything. And so she kind of admits it's because she had seen Linda drop this, this parcel of candles and she kind of had that the idea that maybe she wasn't actually bathing like it looked because of because she had this parcel with her and so Poirot kind of he this this is kind of confirming suspicions for Poirot and he shows her the brown leather book that he had found and now we get the title of it Cameron history of witchcraft sorcery and untraceable poisons ah so it wasn't satanic rituals witchcraft. <laughs> so you're feeling a little bit vindicated there and then, so he shows her this. He doesn't really say anything about it. I think he's just kind of letting her know. I think he asks, have you seen this book before? And she goes, oh yeah, Linda was looking at that in the shop the other day. She put it back on the shelf. So we, we, we the readers, know more now. And then he asks her, did she take a bath before going to play tennis? And she kind of looks at him like, no, why would I do that? 
and it's like okay we're just checking because the bath had been drawn from that wing of the hotel where uh, all the marshals had the room so uh, linda marshall captain marshall and arlena marshall both the redferns were on that wing christine and patrick redfern and miss rosamond darnley so they they all six of them were on that wing so then he speaks with Mrs. Gardner, who is doing a jigsaw puzzle, and he kind of goes on to her about how detecting and like being a sleuth is like solving a puzzle, and there's pieces everywhere, and you're not really sure where they fit in, and you have to figure it out. And he goes, you said something the first day that's given me a real clue to this whole, it's a, I think it's a puzzle piece that fits in somewhere. So he's done talking with Mrs. Marshall, he goes, or sorry, with Mrs. Gardner, and then he goes off to talk to Captain Marshall. And he also asks him about, did he take a bath before tennis? Which Marshall replies, of course not. And then he goes to kind of like get mad at him, but Poirot has already left the room. And Poirot noticed something. Um, when they had been in his Captain Marshall's room the day before, the desk was in the left corner of the room. And now it's in the center of the room under the mirror. Cameron smiled. Well... It was Rosamond that said she saw him. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would have been hard to see him. And he responded that he had seen her in the mirror. So they're trying to set up an alibi together. It's looking like it. So then, he ran, so then Poirot, Poirot has gotten out of Captain Marshall's room pretty quick. So then he runs into Mr. Gardner. And he wants to get Mr. Gardner's candid opinion of Mrs. Marshall. And he kind of goes, Mr. Marshall goes, like, I've heard all the opinions of all the women around that she was like she was uh, a temptress or those kind of things. But he goes, in my opinion, she was just a darn fool. And Poirot goes, ah, that's very insightful. And then walks away. Who is it? Uh, Mr. Gardner right. of the American couple. Right. So he leaves Mr. Gardner and then goes to talk to Rosamond Darnley. And she's expecting Poirot because she's seen him going around to all the individuals talking to them. And she's been waiting for him to come ask her some questions. And she kind of gives him, she's like, well, I'll give you my theory. She thinks that the day before the murder had been really rainy and misty. And so she thinks that it would have been easy for someone to sneak onto the island while everyone was like inside and you couldn't really see anything and hide away in Pixie's Cove or Pixie's Cave and wait for the next day when they could have attacked. They could have like had a meeting with Arlena and attacked her or something like that. That's her theory is that it's an outsider. And Poirot kind of says, yeah, sure, like, I don't, not that he agrees with her, but he's letting her talk. And he says that one person has been indicated from the beginning, but now it would have been impossible. It couldn't have been that person. And Rosemary gets a little heated about that, but they move on. And she, again, is asked, did you take a bath? And she says, no, I did not take a bath before tennis. Why would I do that? Kind of same, everyone's reaction has been. And so Poirot goes, that's strange. That means nobody took that bath. What are you thinking about that, Cam? You mentioned ghosts relating to Arlena. Maybe the ghost took a bath. <laughs> Wait, when did, I, when did I mention ghosts related to Arlena? I think you said she had ghosts in her past. That was Rosamond. Rosamond had ghosts in her past. Yeah. See, they're close together in my notes. So Rosamond took the bath because of the ghost? No, no, the ghost took a bath. Uh, the ghost took a bath in Rosamond's room. That's a nobody, right? You're right. Okay. Got it. Great. Great, insightful comment, Cameron. Thank you. So Poirot also tells Arlena, oh, sorry, Poirot also tells Rosamond that uh, she and Arlena wore the same perfume, Gabrielle number eight, and that mm. he had smelt it in the cave, in Pixie's cave that day, the day of the murder. So he's saying either you or Arlena was in that, in the cave that day, I think. 
And she goes, what do you mean? It's not me. Like, that. don't be ridiculous. It must have been Arlena. And he kind of says, okay, but why was Arlena in the cave? He's kind of giving his questions there. And then he leaves to go find Linda, who he finds in Gull Cove. And she's just kind of sitting there, kind of looks like just thinking, like lost in thought. He kind of says to her, I know you lied to the police when you said you were fond of your stepmother. Mother, why would you lie? And she kind of goes like, oh, well, you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead. So I just, you know, it's no use. Like, why does it matter? And then he asks her to let him help her, like let him help her in her bitter troubles. And at him saying that, she kind of, there's this terrified look that comes across her face and she runs away. So Inspector Colgate and Colonel Weston are talking, the two police, and the inspector says the reports are back about Arlena's money. And it turns out that only 15,000 pounds, so one five is left of the 50,000 pounds, five zero, in the Latin, and that was from two years ago. And so this is 1940s money, it's a lot of money. How did she get through that much money in that time? And they find that all of the money she's taken out has been in cash, which means it's not traceable. And so they're kind of going to the blackmail, to the extortion, to the whatever theory. This fits in a little bit. Then they've also checked up on the Reverend Stephen Lane, and they found that he had signed himself into a psychiatric hospital. He had been there for over a year because of his, I think, either fantasies or like imagination around evil and the devil. And so they're kind of thinking, I guess they kind of call it, or in that day it would be like religious fanatic. You might call it the same thing today, but they're kind of saying, could he have, could that have been a reason for murder in that she was this beautiful woman and he couldn't accept that in his mind as a, as a reverend or as a religious person, mm-hmm. maybe stretch. And then they do find that his name was in the church book, but the previous entry before his name was three days earlier and so they're saying he could have gone there any time between then and signed his name as if it was of a, a future day and then just been around all the time so they're kind of saying proves nothing and then they've also found that captain marshall's firm like where he works is near the rocks and he was he would have really appreciated some money and so that fifty thousand pounds that he thought he might be inheriting would really have been useful for him and then Poirot had also asked the police for any cases of strangulation in the last three years. And so Inspector Colgate had some done some digging on it. And they found two cases that were kind of similar in Surrey the year before, or a few years before. Uh, and they don't get into that yet, but they're going to. So Poirot was kind of sitting off to himself, and he's going through his thinking process. And this is where... The little gray cells. The little... Cameron's got it, the little gray cells. So he's starting to try and piece this thing together, find all the puzzle pieces, put them all together. And so here are, I'm just going to list them. You've heard all of this before, but he's now outlined all the things that he thinks are important. So the first one is Gabrielle number eight, the perfume. Then the pair of scissors, a broken pipe, a bottle thrown from a window, a green calendar, a packet of candles, a mirror and a typewriter, a skein of magenta wool that I didn't say it specifically, but that's the wool that Mrs. Gardner had asked for was magenta wool and a girl's wristwatch, bath water rushing down the water pipes. So those are all the things that he's kind of going, how, not that they're all connected to the murder, but how do I make all of these things fit in, in his mind? And then he's also thinking about 
Inspector Colgate had told him about the two previous, about those like strangulations that they thought were similar. And so he's, I think, thinking about them when Inspector Colgate kind of comes to join him. And they start talking about one of them in particular. And that was the death of Alice Corrigan. And it was, it was kind of similar in that this, this girl had been found strangled by a um, hiking school, like school teacher, like a games mistress, which is what they called gym teachers back then. And she had found the body and kind of immediately kept hiking, like left the body behind and gone off to get the police. And in this case, it was kind of similar in that they had immediately suspected the poli- the husband. But then when they checked the husband, he had like a, un- not an unbreakable, but kind of similar unbreakable alibi in that he was on a train and every everyone from the same train car as him had gotten onto the bus he'd gotten into to take to town. Him and his wife, this Alice Corrigan woman, were supposed to meet at um, a cafe, I believe, in town, and then they were going to go home together. And that he had gone from the bus kind of directly to the cafe where he'd ordered tea and been sitting there until after the time when that that hiker had found the body. Mm. So they're kind of talking about that and talking about how those those kind of there there are some similarities to it. And there, I think, Pora says the specific similarity is that the husband has an alibi. Separately, the police are kind of discussing what to do, and their opinion is, is now that it kind of involves drugs, is that Scotland Yard needs to be called in. Like, this is a job for not just, like, the local police. And it's, they're, they're also pretty sure, who, who do you think of the characters in this book might be related with drug smuggling? Because that's the kind of idea, is that this is, just, this is like a, this is a smuggling gang. This is, this is all to do with the drugs. I thought it would be Blatt. Yeah? That's what I thought. Wow, what do you think happens? What do you think he does? Uh, he pretends to go sailing. Instead, he goes to fix his cove, and I don't know, he's smuggling drugs, and then she comes in and says, like, hey, you can't do that. And he's like, no, I'm just trying to. <laughs> okay. So they're, they're pretty sure, they're not sure that he's necessarily involved with the death, but that he could be. They do, they agree with you. They think Horace Blatt is involved somehow in the drug smuggling. Just based on, they've looked at his bank accounts, they've looked at his records. The fact that he's always been nervous and the Poirot has really noticed that, yeah, they think there's something going on there. And so Poirot points out that there was a, remember there was a couple that was coming to the island that day for a picnic. Mrs. Castle had told them about it. And so he's saying, what if the way they did it is they would leave the drugs or like, yeah, Blatt would leave the drugs in the cave and then this innocent couple would come to have lunch, have a picnic lunch, and they would, that's how they would get the drugs off the island. That's kind of their their possibility. And then the police are kind of there. They're saying, yeah, they think it must be Blatt who is the murderer. And I think it's, it's similar to what you're saying is that, yeah, she, that he's, she saw something, something along those lines and that he had, he strangled her. But Cameron, I will point out to you that we have 25 pages left. Don't they normally solve a mystery at the end? You do. Like not at the very end, near the end. Okay, so you want to stand by your statement? So they're about to reveal his reasoning. Sorry? They're about to reveal it, you think? I think I think the reveal is coming pretty close, so I think you should take your official guess. Well, who is she giving the money to? Arlena? Yeah. Good question. Yes. So you think that's the that's what's tying everything together? If you find out who the money is going to... Do you think it was just Redfern? Like, it would have to be more than she just happened upon it, right? Yeah. What are, you, what are your, like, what are the sticking points that you are, like... The, what, why? Even if you have no idea, it's like, why is that happening? If it's, so money is one of them, you're like, why? Where did all that money go? Right. What else are you thinking? Like, what else is like kind of catching your attention? 
What are the odds that Brewster is related to Brewster is related to the old man that died and gave the money to Arlena? Ah, uh, so you why does she just happen to be there? Ah, uh, so you're thinking either is she lying or what are the chances that she just happened upon this island? Like, could she have set this up? Right. Okay. Maybe some more organization. Okay. So I think the police kind of get onto that as well. Miss Brewster was on the terrace that whole morning and then went out to row with Red, like Redfern. Like they found the body together. Right. So she she definitely didn't leave the terrace until then. Right. She might have been involved otherwise. I see. Like accomplice or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the gardeners seem otherwise completely useless. You probably would have dropped them from your description if they were meaningless. And he mentions the wool despite it seeming useless. But I can see no relation with that. So that's a confusing point of, like, how is that tying into anything? Yeah, why do they mention them? I mean, there's tons of other characters they don't bother mentioning. Why do they mention the gardeners? <sighs> yeah, that's fair. Okay, so weird points are the money. Miss Brewster, is that really a coincidence? And skein of wool, why does it keep coming up? Right. But I have no way of resolving these things. And so none of the other things that Poro finds interesting are interesting to you. Which is fair. That's how I feel in a lot of these books. I'm like... <laughs> This has nothing to do with it. Why is this here? Exactly. Okay. I'd still say Ken. Okay. How do you think he did it? Well, I said I think Linda comes along, gives the alibi with the typing, and then he runs off and does it in three minutes and comes back. So, but Linda was on the beach until 11.45 with... So she says. Redfern. Christine Redfern. That's what she, Linda says. Ah. So what do, you think, what do you think actually happened? She would have given the wrong time to Redfern. Remember that Redfern never saw her tennis partner, even though they would have been in the same the same place at the same time. Right. So in fact, she went back a lot earlier without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, Linda runs over to the hotel, pretends to type, makes an alibi for Kenneth, her father, while he goes and kills Arlena. Okay. I like it. Do you want to hear more about the story? Sure. So I won't give you the solution yet, because Poirot has some other things up his sleeve that he wants to get into, and so you can hear that first, and then we can talk about it a little bit more. So he wants to set up. Poirot says, you know what I think we need to do? We need to have a picnic. Everyone needs to come, the whole hotel, like everyone involved, we're going for a picnic. Naturally, right? Naturally, that's the perfect idea. So he kind of goes around telling everyone, and it's just this, like, trying to convince everyone, and everyone is a little bit skeptical at first. They're like, picnic, why would we do this? But Poirot is persuasive. He's able to convince everyone. I think he tells Rosamond, can you convince Linda? That's the only person he's a little bit worried about. But Rosamond says that's fine. She's able to come. And then they get a, they've gotten a bus together, and they start. A bus? Or like a van. Okay. Big car for everyone to fit in, or maybe sure. several cars. I think they're planning to go to the Dartmoor coast, like which is nearby. I think it's a real place in England. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm like, I should look these things up. And other times I'm like, who cares? It's the fun of it. We have no idea where things are. It could be fictional for all I care. But they're going on to the mainland. And right at the last minute, Rosamond Darnley comes out and says that Linda's changed her mind. She's not coming. She says she has a headache. And Parle goes, well, you have to persuade her. Like She has to come. But Rosamond's like, no, she's not coming. And you know what? I don't think I'll go either. Luckily, Poirot's allowed to convince her, no, no one's not allowed to, like, you have to come. You're here now. Gets down the car and they go out. And I think they're, the plan is, is they're going to make, like, several stops. Like, they're going to go to a couple different places. And so they get to their first stop. And that's when everyone kind of starts to get, like, loosened up and, like, enjoying themselves. And everyone's having a great time. Like, everyone's, everyone's getting pretty glad that they did come. And I think, um... 
Mr. Blatt is like taking pictures or something like that. And so someone's name is Brewster was complaining about that going like, he took it at such an unfavorable time. Like I was just getting up and I'm not even like looking at the camera. He could have at least warned us or something like that. And then they go to the next spot they go to, they have to cross like a, like a fallen log along a river to get to the beach. And everyone, all the young people kind of run across it, no problem. But Miss Brewster kind of gets stuck in the middle and like is like almost having a panic attack and needs to be helped to the other side. And that's, she's saying like, you know, it's just like heights and things like that to kind of she, she give her panic. This was Emily Brewster, yeah. And so they get to the other side and they have a lovely, lovely time. And this is where I think the gardeners come up to Paro and say like, thank you. This was amazing. I'm so glad we stayed for this. Like, this is so fun. And then they get back to... Like, they're all cheery. They get back to the hotel, and one of the housemaids runs out to, I think, Christine Redfern and goes, I can't wake up, Linda. Like, she won't wake up. And Poirot comes up and says, what's going on? And it's clarified, and they both go up to Linda's room, and they find her. She's Her breathing is really shallow. She, like, looks cold and sickly, and they call a doctor to find out what's wrong. And so they've got gathered everyone into kind of one of the lounge rooms and are kind of just waiting around, and... The doctor comes in and says, I don't know if she'll make it. She took 25 sleeping pills, which is a lot. Like, she's like, this, this, I really don't know. She might make it, but I don't think so. And it turns out Christine Redfern kind of goes, oh, my gosh. I let her take her sleeping pill after Arlena's death to help because she was having trouble sleeping. And, like, she would have known, she would have known I should have locked them up. Like, I didn't realize they were just in my room, like that kind of thing. That's kind of freaky. So does any of that change your opinion? Or are you now more set than ever on your your solution? So you stopped to mention that Brewster was scared of heights. I don't know why. Obviously, she couldn't descend the ladder. I don't know how that changes anything, though. Why not? Okay. <laughs> he was laughing at me. <sighs> okay. Um, another thing that they had found in Linda's room, so not just did she take these sleeping pills, but they found find a note in her handwriting that says... I think this is the best way out. Ask father to try and forgive me. I killed Arlena. I thought I should be glad, but I'm not. I am very sorry for everything. So this is like pretty, pretty clear admitting of guilt. So from that, I think some people are going like, it's impossible how like she couldn't have killed Arlena because the time, like that's what we were saying. She'd been with Redfern, Christine Redfern, until a quarter to 12 at 11.45. And so I think the, the chief constable is going, like, this It's this is not, this letter is nonsense, it's impossible. It, right, Poirot? And Poirot goes, well, it's not impossible. And Christine Redfern kind of pipes in, what do you mean? Like, she gave me, she gave me the time. I told you, I like, I told the police what time I left. Like, it's the medical evidence, like, it can't be. And Poirot says... You're right, she gave you the time, but you never checked it yourself. He says it was Linda's own wristwatch. She could have told you any time you want. And then he asks Christine Redfern, I think you were really quite in thought on your way back to the hotel from the beach. And in fact, you were thinking about leaving the hotel altogether. And she she admits that's true. And that she was she was thinking about leaving and that because she was so upset with her husband. She'd just been so unhappy. So she was, Poirot saying that he thinks that she was deaf and blind to kind of her surroundings and it could have taken her any, any imaginable num- amount of time to get back to the hotel. So then he says that he needs to describe what items he found in 
Linda's room. And so he's talking about the large blob of wax, the burnt hair, the fragment of cardboard, the paper, ordinary household pin. And he's saying that all of this was suggestive, especially because of the volume of witchcraft, magic and witchcraft book that he had found in her room. And that, so he says in the book, there were lots of, uh, there were lots of pages describing how you could mold wax into the figure of the per like the, to represent your victim and then stab a pin through the heart to kill them. And then also like if you had a piece of their like hair or whatever, burn it to kind of like cause death. And so Poirot's going, I think Linda thought that doing all of this had killed Arlena. But of course, we know as an like older generation, not not like a young person, that this that's completely not true. And young so she had, so sorry, young people are so silly. Young people are so silly, is what he's saying. And he's saying so. Linda herself thought that the evidence was going to come out and prove that she had done it, but we know that that's not true. So then Poirot goes into if that if we kind of eliminate that as a possibility, what other possibilities are there? And then he turns to Marshall, and says. You gave you gave an alibi, or you were given an alibi from Mrs. Darn Miss Darnley saying that she saw you typing, and you to corroborate that said that actually you had seen her in the mirror. Yet I know that you moved the typewriting desk, and it wasn't in front of the mirror before. So there's no way you could have seen her. So if you're willing to lie about that, what else are you willing to lie about? And then he suggests that if Mrs. Darnley did come back to the hotel at that point, could she have typed for you while you went and killed? your wife is that a possibility and so then they get up in arms about all of that so he's kind of saying i i don't believe you could have killed her if you were acting alone but if you had an accomplice then all of this kind of changes and makes it more possible so after all of this poirot is saying so these are all those were possibilities but what it doesn't explain is that when arlena left that morning i thought and i could have sworn that she was going to meet patrick redfern her facial expressions, her voice suggested that she was going to meet a lover. So what if it is in fact that she did meet Patrick Redfern there and that Patrick Redfern killed her? And so, of course, Patrick Redfern jumps up and is like, what do you mean? Like, I was on the beach the entire time. It's, it's daft what you're saying. Like, this is ridiculous. Miss Brewster and I found the body. And Poirot kind of pipes up and goes, you're right, you did found a body, but not a dead body. Do you have any ideas now what's going on? I've maybe explained this a little bit badly. Sorry, Redfern went out with who again? Miss Brewster. Miss Brewster. In the boat to find, and that's where they found the body on the beach. I and Poirot suggesting that there was a body there, but it wasn't a dead body. Right. And then someone stayed with the body and someone else went and got the police. Patrick Redfern stayed with the body and Miss Brewster went to get the police. And she didn't actually check if it was dead. He said that her own was cold. Mr. Redfern said the body was cold and that there were strangulation marks under the hat. I see. Now, why would she be lying there? Presumably unconscious. Mm-hmm. Drugged out? Possibly. But they don't... Poirot was pretty convinced that she wasn't a drug, a drug addict. So if she had drugs in her system, it wouldn't have been of her own doing, probably. They probably would have found marks if it was heroin. Probably. So we'll rule that out. Why was she asleep? And in an unnatural position, as Miss Emily Brewster had described it. Right. So she was meeting Blatt, maybe, I don't know. Um, then he had hit her, uh, and she had gone unconscious. Then he had left. Then Redfern had found her, and I don't know, something like that. It was just optimal timing. Well, then, so the other thing that Poirot says is that he identifies Patrick Redfern as Edward Corrigan, 
husband to Alice Corrigan who had died of strangulation and that Christine Redfern was actually Christine Deverell, the woman who had found the body of Alice Corrigan. And so he kind of he then he gets into the description of how those two deaths were very similar, even though, so the first was a husband and the second was just a lover. They were similar in that Christine helped Christine Redfern set up the alibi in terms of timing. And the way she did that was similar to kind of how we've suggested before, just flipped. Linda did give Christine Redfern the time, but it wasn't her who was giving the time early. It was Christine Redfern who had moved her watch early. She had been in Linda's room when Linda had come in suddenly carrying that package. So she had had time to switch the watch. And then when she left, she had switched it back so that it would be on time again. So Linda had no idea she was getting the wrong time. Then Christine had climbed up. She had been wearing baggy clothing. And early that morning, she had used a bottle to put on fake tan and thrown the bottle out the window. She had taken her long clothing off, gone and put on one of the, like the wide brimmed hat that she was talking about. It was made of cardboard over her head so she couldn't see her and lied out unnaturally on the beach. On the other hand, Mr. Redpern had set up with Arlena Marshall maybe the day before. They were to meet around 10.30 or whatever, 11, on Pixie's Cove. And he told her, if you hear anyone coming, go hide in the cave. And so when she had heard Christine Redford coming down the ladder, she'd gone to hide in the cave and waited until Redford came to give the all clear. And so all Christine Redford had to do was lie there until Mr. Redford and Miss Emily Brewster came around the corner. He said she was dead, even though she wasn't. Miss Emily Brewster leaves. Then Christine Redford quickly throws back on her clothes, uses the scissors to cut up the cardboard hat, which she then later burns in Linda's grate with a piece of a calendar to make it look like it was a calendar, even though it wasn't, it was just this green cardboard. And Patrick goes to call um, Arlena Marshall to come out of the cave, where he then strangles her and kind of props her body up to look as it had before. And you were right in that it was a money motive. Mr. Redfern had been getting money, not from bad blackmail, but just because Arlena Marshall was just bad with her money, she would just give it to people, which was pointed out and how Poirot figured it out was similar to that other man that had gone to China. He hadn't given her any money. Actually, in his letter, he thanked Arlena for the check. And so it was that idea of like, she's giving money, she's not getting money from people. Right. And then he also says that an important piece was when Mr. Gardner had said that his opinion of Arlena was that she was a damned fool, was that kind of idea that she she wasn't the one controlling men as Mr. Redfern wanted everyone to believe. It was men that were controlling her. Right. Are you confused or does this clear things up? I'm sure you have some questions. Oh, no, that's all. That explains everyone except for Lane. Except for Lane. He was just window dressing, I think. He was just what? Window dressing. It's a little bit of flavor, you know? Ah, ah, I see. He was just around to throw your... Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. So the, the other thing, because you pointed on this as well, the skein of wool, the reason for that is that he would have been got, he would have gone up to the hotel around the same time that Miss Rosemond had said she was checking in on Captain Marshall. And so he's kind of saying the fact that he didn't hear or see Rosamond when he was getting the skein of wool makes it probable that she was lying about even going up there in the first place and she was just crying, trying to create an alibi for him. So that was, that was to do with that. And then also the bath being run, he knew, Paro knew someone was lying about not having a bath because it happened. So who was lying? And it was 
Christine Redfern had put all that fake tan on and she had to wash it off before she went to to the tennis game to show that nothing had happened. Boom. What do you think? Good one? Yeah, it's pretty good. This, so this was Evil Under the Sun, a good, a good summer fun, fun, you know, exciting, like totally normal, natural murder. Exactly. <laughs> so Cameron, did you enjoy yourself? Oh my God, great. Do you start the, uh, start the morning? Start the morning? Start the day. For everyone listening, it's 3 p.m. here. <laughs> Why? It did take us two hours and 40 minutes to record this, though, so hopefully it's not that long when we cut it down. <laughs> Gosh, man, Hopefully. no one wants to listen to all of this. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts, Cameron? No, not really. Should I? No, I yeah. think we did good. Yeah. Uh, I hope everyone at home got, Cameron did get guess some good points. So I hope everyone at home got, uh, maybe got some of the USA ones or different ones and maybe able to clue into parts of the mystery. I feel like there was a couple different things going on. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of Tuesday Night Mystery Club. This is episode 13, so there's lots more on any of the places you listen to podcasts. If you want to see some beautiful pictures of the books that we do on here, you can follow me at Tuesday Night Mystery Club on Instagram. And if you have any suggestions, comments, concerns, you can send me an email at Tuesday Night Mystery Club at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. See ya.